is Killer Innovations, a show about ideas, creativity, and how you can innovate. Welcome to the Innovator's Garage, where you learn to create your next game-changing killer innovation. Hello, and welcome to the Innovator's Garage, where we are all about ideas, creativity, and innovation, and where you can come together and listen in on some top innovator stories and how they think about innovating the work that they are doing. Uh, now, when we talk about innovation, one organization that you normally don't think about is governments, uh, particularly the U.S. government. Today's guest, though, had a front row seat in the U.S. government. Dr. Tom Salucci was the first chief commercialization officer for Department of Homeland Security. Now, his appointment was the first chief commercialization officer in the U.S. federal government's executive branch. Now, in addition, Tom has a long history prior to his work in the government, uh, in private sector. He's uh, very well known in the startup world. Uh, he's also a well-known expert in the areas of commercialization in nanotechnology. But he's also a recognized expert in the practical commercialization of new and emerging technologies, both in private and the public sectors. He was appointed as the first director of R&D group at the U.S. Department of Homeland Security, which was a multi-billion dollar uh, responsibility. He had leadership over about 1,300 people. And actually, it was the very first head of an R&D group when you think about the effort of coming up with new technologies, both internally developed, but also brought in and partnered with outside parties. So, Tom, welcome to the show. I'm really glad you're able to join us today. Thanks so much, Phil, for having me. It's my pleasure. So, Tom, as I, as I started off, you know, one of the things we don't typically think about is commercialization when it comes to the, uh, to the government. And I know you've kind of got this mental framework about what is invention, what is innovation, and then what is commercialization. So why don't you kind of – let's use that as kind of the starting point to lay down the, the framework for the rest of our conversation today. Oh, sure. That's your Phil. Yeah, I think you need to categorize uh, different ways that we can invent, um, apply, and then fully productize technology. So I do like to segment this area into invention, innovation, and commercialization. And I will also like to comment, if I could, Phil, that in my humble opinion, the United States, I believe, is still the leader of invention but unfortunately, I don't think the United States anymore is the leader in innovation or commercialization. I'll explain why briefly. But invention really is the discovery of a new technology. And the reason why I think the U.S. is still the leader, Phil, is due to the fact that uh, having been a professor for more than 25 years now, I get to teach uh, not only at universities that I've been associated with, but all over the world. And I will tell you anecdotally, that most countries still send their very best students to the United States University System for Education. So I believe that invention is still led by the United States. We have probably the best uh, professors and researchers in the world. However, in the area of innovation, which I define as the first application of technology to solve problems, uh, I believe for many, many years the U.S. was a leader, but I think this has been taken over by countries like Germany. Uh, Japan had uh, been a leader for quite some time in the auto industry, for example. But I also believe today that countries like China, 
and India are leaders in the first application of technology. And finally, commercialization. And I broadly define commercialization as the development or recognition of a market and the design and deployment of products, services, or capabilities to meet the demands or needs of those markets. And I think it was a critical thing missing in government, um, and that's why when uh, given the opportunity to be the first chief commercialization officer, working directly for both President George W. Bush and being honored to be asked by President Obama to stay on at the White House and the U.S. Department of Homeland Security, it gave us an opportunity to make what I hope will be a lasting impression. But commercialization is where the rubber meets the payment, so to speak. This is where you take technology and apply it rigorously to meet the unmet needs, wants of a given market. And when you think about it, you know, when I went to government, I went really with a simple hypothesis that the private sector would be ready, willing, and able to help the U.S. government if the U.S. government gave it two things, neither of which were money, Phil. The money would come later. First would be detailed operational requirements. Government, as we all know, and I can say it because I was a govy, are not the best communicators. But if you want to solve problems, you need to be able to communicate those problems in the form of a requirement, document, statement, etc. So that was one thing. Government needed to give the private sector detailed operational requirements. That is, define the problem. Not define solutions, but define the problem, because there could be many solutions to a problem, as we know from experience. The second thing the government needed to do uh, which it never thinks of itself as a strong market, yet when you think about it, they leverage a huge amount of market potential. And that's why, for example, in some of the uh, consulting I've done in the past, uh, I get paid uh, sizable retainers to help uh, businesses from all around the world access in a legal, ethical way these huge markets within the U.S. Uh, government and military. And the idea was that government needed to explain, not promise, but just show where certain um, solutions could be used. And if done properly, which I believe we did early on uh, when we came to the government, uh, we showed that the, the potential available markets were huge. And I will tell you that the hypothesis proved out very quickly. And I was very, very fortunate. People ask me all the time, Tom, it um, you know must have been really frustrating to come from the private sector after selling my fourth company. Uh, you know what was it like? And I tell people all the time, it, it didn't matter if one president was in the Democrat Party or the other in the Republican. Uh, they not only supported what I did, they embraced it. The same with secretaries. I got the pleasure to work with Secretary Napolitano, Secretary. Michael Chertoff, they didn't support what we were doing, they embraced it. Because people recognize today, and you do on your show, that it's not only about executing, it's the speed of execution. And I used to say to the secretaries of Homeland Security, where would the speed of execution be more important than protecting our people and secondarily our assets, our critical infrastructure? So it was a great experience. It wasn't without frustration. I will tell you that the only real frustrations I saw were what people would typically see 
trying to be a change agent, and it wasn't working at the highest levels of government or at the secretary levels, it's like losing weight, Phil. The hardest part is the middle. And and we were finally able to do it with the team we had, but very often I'd get someone who worked in government 26, 28 years, and they would say to me, Tommy, why are you trying to take my job away using the resources of the private sector? I said, we're not trying to take your job away. You will never have the amount of budget or resources you need in the mission space of a homeland security, for example. Do those things you can using the private sector, and for the one-off custom systems or tools you need, that's when you need to pay the private sector. For example, think about, uh, for example, a handheld uh, chemical detector. Why should the government go through the early stages of developing something like that when the market would be huge? Uh, not only would Customs Border Protection agents use it, Secret Service agents use it, but cops could use it, firefighters can use it, Coast Guard could use it, the military could use it. And what we started doing is defining the detailed operational requirements in an open and forthright way and offering a conservative estimate of the potential available market. And I have to say that I was proud that I came from the private sector. Because even CEOs and chairman of the board of private sector organizations want to do right by their country, want to help their fellow countrymen. So it was a, a rounding success, and I'm proud to say I go around the world now teaching uh, other governments how to implement these models. Yeah, Tom, that's actually great. You've laid the great foundation. I'm going to come back, though. We're going to get ready to take a, a quick commercial break here. going to pay a few bills. But we come back. I want to pick up back on our on your on your point at the very beginning on the invention in the U.S. education. I wrote I don't know if you read it. I wrote the blog post two weeks ago on kind of the the America's innovation problem, and I mentioned education in it. And I probably have a little bit of a different perspective. And my uh, my listeners probably uh, well will understand the the my perspective on that. So when we come back, we're going to pick up right where we left off. Uh, so stay tuned. Don't go anywhere. We've got more segments coming up with Tom getting his expertise. I'm Phil McKinney, and this is Killer Innovations on the BizTalk Radio Network. BizTalk Radio. This is Killer Innovations, a show about ideas, creativity, and how you can innovate. Welcome to the Innovator's Garage, where you learn to create your next game-changing killer innovation. I'm Phil McKinney, and welcome back to our second segment with Tom Salucci. If you're just joining us, Tom is a recognized expert in the commercialization of both new and emerging technologies in the private and public sector, having held previously the first chief commercialization officer in the U.S. federal government's executive branch. So, Tom, let's pick up where we left off. I'm not letting you off the hook. You started off the segment talking about that you felt that the U.S. on the invention side was actually still in a strong leadership role, but the innovation and commercialization. On the invention side, you specifically were mentioning education. Um, and I've 
put out actually two weeks ago. There's a blog post. You can go over to filmandkenny.com, check it out, um, where I'm basically kind of raising the flag on uh, the U.S. Innovation Challenge. And one of the things I point out is the challenge on education with a couple of things. One is the cost of education is just escalating at far faster pace than cost of living, which is just putting education out of out of range from the standpoint of that piece. And though the fact that in many cases, not so much in the university level, but in our primary and secondary schools, we've gone to such a heavy test model that we are actually producing the world's greatest test takers and really not critical thinking skills. And albeit this last week, President Obama just put out a new directive to the U.S. Department of Education to kind of back off on the testing that the government now is recognizing that we're spending too much time on the test taking and memorization rather than the other critical skills. So I'll throw that out there as kind of a starting point for the conversation and see where you take it. And I think you're going to find, Phil, that we're in violent agreement. And I have to, in terms of full and open disclosure, let you know that uh, someone more famous than me, a member of my family, Paul Salucci, was the governor of Massachusetts. In fact, uh, Governor Salucci, who unfortunately uh, died two years ago from ALS at a relatively young age, was actually the first governor given credit to do testing. So I can say with... Um, a fair amount of authority that Paul himself, while he was very proud, he was a real believer like me in metrics, he never would have wanted testing to get to the point where it is today. And I totally agree with you, Phil, that we are training more and more, particularly in the younger grades, uh, having many children myself and now three grandchildren, that that we're we are training people to take tests. And that was never the motivation or the point uh, for Governor Salucci starting in Massachusetts, uh, you know, having kids take tests. But unfortunately, that's what it's morphed into. And I applaud what President Obama and others are doing, like yourself, because that was never the intention. I think, you know, uh, so often in life, in business, we can go overboard on things. And I think the pendulum has swung too far. The reason for oh, I agree. comment about leading, so I do agree with you, particularly with young people. I all heartily agree with you in terms of the cost of education. I'm someone that spends a lot of time uh, talking about STEM, uh, science, technology, engineering, mathematics, uh, being a volunteer judge for uh, high schoolers and even grammar school kids. It's very, very critical. And in the university systems today, Unfortunately, these have very much become businesses, and it's out of reach. And I do agree with President Obama that college should be something within everyone's reach. I was very fortunate. I grew up with wonderful parents who loved us but didn't have a lot of money. If it weren't for the scholarships that I was able to get for my undergraduate as well as graduate school and my MBA, I never would have uh, been able to obtain those degrees. Uh, where I talk about being uh, and, and where I see a lot of invention with the government is I will tell you a true story. Uh, President Obama had gone to uh, a meeting uh, with what's called the NEC, and I promise not to use too many acronyms, but that's the National Economic Council. And he came and he said, I don't get it. How come 
we spend $119 billion a year on average for R&D of advanced manufacturing, yet our trade deficit during the same 10-year period where on average we're spending $119 billion is, you know, $80 billion. So we have a trade deficit. And I basically, in a nice way, said, can you handle the truth? And, of course, he said yes. I said, because I bet you the vast majority of the R&D we're doing in the U.S. government across many of the agencies, like the military, uh, Homeland Security, Department of Energy, that the R level, the research level, more of the invention, not the commercialization. And the commercialization of products leads to products. And he said, I just can't believe that. So I said, let's do an experiment. We're going to put out a data call using your name, the President of the United States, because guess what? That gets attention of the secretaries who run the various uh, civilian agencies as well as the military, the Department of Defense, Department of Defense, anyone who did or dealt with manufacturing. So in the government, Phil, if we draw a two-axis graph and the y-axis is technology readiness level called TRL, it goes from level one to nine, nine being uh, the most advanced, a fully deployable product. And on the x-axis, we have MRL, manufacturing readiness level. That goes from one, which is no, it's not manufacturable, or it hasn't been uh, developed yet, all the way to MRL level 10. And we put make a quad in that graph. The lower left-hand corner would be low TRL, low MRL, which would more be invention, and the upper right would be high TRL, high MRL, which would mean a fully deployable product or service. It would be a commercialized product or service. And I said, Mr. President, I bet that most of the information we get from these departments, both military and civilian, is going to be in the lower left-hand quadrant. And people said, no, no, that can't be, that can't be. Well, three weeks later, we got the data, and I was wrong. And everyone said, well, we knew you were wrong, Tom. I said I was wrong because all of the data is in the lower left-hand quadrant. And people were going, <laughs> oh, my God. And no kidding. And when you looked at the titles, Phil, of the descriptions of the programs, the uh, coefficient of overlap was almost one. That's how similar so here we are spending on average $119 billion a year in the U.S. government and military on advanced manufacturing methods, techniques, tools, etc. And here we're at the lowest levels of the technology readiness level, manufacturing readiness level. We needed to get to the upper right-hand quadrant. And, of course, hey. I, uh, I got messed up because then the president appointed me to work on with a very small you, group to write the national yeah, be strategy careful. for it. Yeah, be careful, Tom, what you asked for, right? You raised the problem, exactly. you're going to get challenged exactly. to, to exactly. fix so, it. So it became my let's, problem with a small group of others, but it actually was yep, let's Hey, Tom, let's stay, let's stay right there. We're going to be right back. We're going to take a quick commercial break. I'm Phil McKinney, and you're listening to Kill Innovations on the BizTalk Radio Network. Biz Talk Radio.
This is Killer Innovations, a show about ideas, creativity, and how you can innovate. Welcome to the Innovator's Garage, where you learn to create your next game-changing killer innovation. I'm Phil McKinney, and welcome back. As we were just ending the last segment, Tom, you were going through this two-by-two grid where the vertical axis was technology readiness level, the horizontal axis was the manufacturing readiness level. You went out under the name of the president, collected this data to find out that you were wrong and that everything was in the lower left-hand corner, and then you got the task of fixing it. So how did you go through deciding what technology, what products, how did, how, did, how did you make the transition or how did you help get us from the lower left-hand corner up into a much more broader readiness level kind of uh, plan? That's a great question, Phil. And some of the things we did is we developed something uh, that we, we were able to make uh, for the public. By the way, for your uh, listening audience, if they just Google Salucci, my last name, which is C as in Charlie, E-L-L-U-C-C-I, and Google that plus requirements development or books, um, kind of embarrassed to tell you I've written 24 books. My 23rd book is almost like a textbook on all of this. It's still on Amazon. But most of the stuff I've done is freely available for any of your listeners, so I just thought that could help. But basically what we did is we developed something called the PPI, which was uh, an index. It was the project or program uh, priority index. And we basically used what I'll call a management consensus model to decide what were the important attributes of a program that we were looking for. And we would actually rank programs to this PPI at the U.S. Department of Homeland Security. And it was just amazing when you did that, when we would get in a room and agree through consensus what the most important attributes of a program or project should be, you know, how many people would it protect, how much infrastructure would it protect, and we put a scale. And by doing that rigorously, we were able to cut a lot of things out and put more resources into programs that had much more return on investment, if you will. And that was one of the ways to do it. And uh, that is a paper that's still out there, and it was called the PPI, uh, as I said, the Program or Project Prioritization Index. And that was one way of doing it. And the president uh, had myself with a small group write the National Strategy for Advanced Manufacturing. I was very honored with the other members of our small team, that the president uh, on two or maybe three State of the Unions talked about advanced manufacturing. And uh, I was very proud to be part of that team, uh, not being the political. I didn't want to be all the way out there, but the last time I checked on the White House website, uh, that uh, strategy document is still out there. And so that's what happens, as you said, Phil, when you go and you show that uh, you know a little bit what you're talking about, then you get tasked with uh, trying to fix it. And it was an honor to be part of that team. I was very proud of those teammates. Well, that's great. And, and actually, I can my own little uh, backstory is I've got a, I got sucked into uh, Jim Shelton, who was the deputy secretary of education, to innovate K through twelve education, trying to help him. Thus, my passion and my interest in. Uh, 
how do you how do you uh, transform uh, K twelve education? So one point I want to get to though is, is when you think about it from the standpoint of a roadmap. In this case, you use the the prioritization to look at that roadmap. You know, and you've looked at lots of roadmaps. You're you're in uh, private business now. Um, you've done startups. I've been at you know Hewlett Packard, and now my current job running a, an R and D uh, lab for an industry. Uh, what are the three characteristics or attributes that you think make up a good roadmap? Because I've seen everybody does roadmap a thousand different ways, but I want to I want to parlay off of your experience and expertise. What makes what are the three characteristics that make up a really good roadmap? Uh, that's a great question, Phil. I would say uh, foremost, it's that the roadmap was developed not so much the looks of the roadmap, but based on what was the roadmap developed with? Was it just, you know, self-fulfilling prophecy? Was it based on looking at unsatisfied needs and wants? Was it based on uh, detailed requirements in the, in the sense of a short-term technology roadmap? Or in a long-term, where did you get the input for this roadmap? To sit in a room by yourself and figure this out, while that may be nice, it's been my experience that the roadmaps that work out nice have as a foundation uh, the unsatisfied needs and wants of a, of a very uh, stable market or potential market out there. And very often I, I see roadmaps and I say, who are we doing this for? And literally, this is even a billion-dollar company, they look and they say, we don't understand the question. What are we doing this for? What's the reason? So you need to be... Uh, practical in what you're doing this for. In addition, uh, as I mentioned before, very often people would say to me, you can't measure innovation. You can't measure R&D. And I say bunk to that. You need to have uh, metrics. In other words, if you can't measure it, you can't manage it. Now, while you can't predict with 100% certainty the outcome of experiments, or R&D. You certainly could put things in together to monitor what's going on and have backup plans if that doesn't fail. So metrics are important, and I don't believe for a second that you can't monitor R&D. You can't predict it, but you sure, certainly can see trends, and you can decide whether or not go-no-go uh, go decisions in a map that you put in your roadmap, and that's critical. Some of the most important promotions I've given in my career have been to people that have come into my office when I've been the CEO and they said, hey, Tommy, look, I've got to talk to you. I just think we're wasting money on this project. I don't think this is going the right way. These are the reasons why. Lo and behold, I'll go into a staff meeting, talk at the VP levels to people and say, look, let's just be open here. Should we be continuing to do this to find out that no one really believes? And that's what metrics allows you to do and regularly meeting about it. So this idea, and that helps the speed of execution. So mm -hmm. metrics, having a basis, particularly based in detailed requirements, if you can't get detailed requirements, you could do what I call a 5W, where W stands for who, what, where, why, and when. So at least understand how this would be of value. And the third thing is to make sure to have a culture 
where it's okay to make mistakes. As I tell younger people all the time, show me a person that makes a mistake and I'll show you someone doing something. And I think the culture of letting people experiment, try things, you're not going to bankrupt the firm or, or the company or the organization. Try things. Don't be afraid. And that's something that was very hard culturally to get across in the government because people are – it's a different risk tolerance, as you can imagine, in the government versus the private sector. So in the groups that I managed, uh, they didn't believe it at first, but it only took them about a week at one of my first uh, pizza lunches to figure out this guy's for real. He wants you to try things. If it doesn't work, so what? Try something else, you know? Yeah, and I think that's an important part. You know, I mean, it's one of those things that uh, a lot of organizations struggle from. So uh, as we come up on the end of this segment, uh, if they, Tom, if people want to follow what you're doing, how can they find you? You know, well, you on Twitter? Are you should, on Facebook? Uh, yes, I'm on Facebook. I'm on LinkedIn. I think the last time I checked LinkedIn, I'm pushing 21,000. They could just look up Thomas. Salucci, C-E-L-L-U-C-C-I. If anyone wants to uh, write to me, they're more than welcome. I, I'm very proud to lead an organization, uh, cyber uh, security firm. Uh, it's basically a platform, a publicly traded company. They can write to me at tom.salucci at ecryptinc.com. That's E-C-R-Y-P-T-I-N-C. Dot com So Tom.Salucci at ecryptinc.com or just Google me. Perfect. Just when you Google Salucci, uh, either put uh, requirements, development, advanced manufacturing, uh, they'll see plenty of links. Perfect. Thank you, Tom. Uh, I'll also put all those links into the show notes. So you can go over to killinnovations.com and click there. For listeners of this show, we're going to make available a free two-hour course that I've got out there up on Amazon, but we're going to make it available for free on creating killer innovations. Just text the word INNOVATE to 33444. If you're outside the U.S., send an email to innovate at killerinnovations.com. When we come back, I've got a killer question that's really going to challenge you. I'm Phil McKinney, and this is Killer Innovations on the BizTalk Radio Network. Talk Radio. This is Killer Innovations, a show about ideas, creativity, and how you can innovate. Welcome to the Innovator's Garage, where you learn to create your next game-changing killer innovation. So are you ready to exercise your creative muscle this week? So what is this week's killer question? The question is, is what are we throwing away because we assume it has no value? What are we throwing away because we assume it has no value? Now, my wife is famous for being a little frugal. Now, that, that's actually the understatement of the century. I think it comes back to the fact that when we first got married, we lived in an apartment in Evansville, Indiana. And yes, it was actually in a condemned building. We were paying $50 a month. So starting off, um, she's been frugal right from the beginning, and she's never broken that habit. But she's so frugal. She once routed myself 
and my son Logan from Las Vegas to Phoenix to LA and finally to San Jose because she could save 20 bucks each over the nonstop fare. So what became an hour and 15 minute flight if I'd gone straight from Las Vegas to San Jose turned into a six hour odyssey. Kind of nuts, right? But if I'm honest, I have the same mindset in one respect. I'm determined to squeeze everything I can out of any idea or opportunity that's available to me. Now, I'm diligent about looking at information and ideas that supposedly have, quote, no value and wondering, hey, maybe they do. What I mean by this is simple. Just because you or your business has always operated under the assumption that something, be it data, ideas, scraps from manufacturing, is essentially worthless, it doesn't mean that the assumption was ever or still is true. I constantly review the stuff that gets thrown away and ask myself, is there value here? One of my big breaks was becoming one of the early executives at Telligent in 1997. Telligent provided phone services to businesses across the U.S. and in 12 countries. The core products were voice and data services to businesses, and there wasn't much to differentiate us from our competitors. Basically, we were all competing on the same fundamental premise, providing a good, reliable service at a cheaper price. Now, here's the problem with that. If there are no significant differences between you and your competitors, you are essentially in a stalemate. That is, until one of you finds a way to differentiate from the pack. So even as our company continued to hum along nicely, I started asking the questions about who were we, what were we doing, and how were we doing it. I started doing some internal investigating around the information we were gathering from our customers. After a little persistence, I got a hold of the complete call detail records for our network. In the telecom industry, the network throws away any record that isn't relative to billing. And the result was that 70% of the information in call detailed records, this is all the information about every phone call, every data transaction, was basically being thrown away. Customer rang a business, the line was free, the call was answered, and a charge was added to the bill. Great, that's how we make money. But looking through the full call detailed records, I noticed something interesting. The logs showed not only the calls that succeeded, but also the calls that failed. For each business, there were pages and pages of incoming calls that were not completed, usually because the line was busy or the calls were coming before or after business hours. This was information that was thrown away. We didn't bill for failed calls, so there was no need to document them or supply the information. But think about it. Surely knowing that a potential customer tried and failed to make contact with you is valuable information. Furthermore, isn't it the kind of information you would gladly pay for? As soon as I saw the connection between worthless information and our customers' needs, I got up, walked over to our CEO, Alex Mandel's office, and pitched him on a completely new kind of service that we eventually launched, calling it Imagine. Imagine was a game-changing concept that allowed us to take leadership role in the market. For a monthly fee, we offered our customers detailed breakdowns of all the incoming calls that failed to get through, as well as additional services like instantaneous email notifications of each missed call. We supplied the names and the addresses of each incoming call so a business owner could then send out a coupon to every caller the next day. Sounds simple. But think about the small or medium-sized business owner whose margins depend on making every single sale. If that new customer doesn't get through to you, they're simply going to ring the next number in the phone book. They are no loyalty to you and your lost sale and a potential long-term customer. But if you get an instant notification of that call and can ring right back, you've got a fighting chance. You're still in the game. 
Our customers loved Imagine. Now remember, this is 1997. 97, right? By giving them the edge in their own businesses, we submitted their loyalty to ours. And by taking something that we had historically thought had no value in creating something that turned into a game changer. Now, look more closely at your own operations and stop worrying about the assets or attributes that you think you don't have. Instead, try turning inward and focusing on the question, what attributes do I not realize I have? Our competitors had the exact same logs and information as we did, yet they didn't recognize the value. And we saw this information had worth, and we used it to cobble them together. Now, do you think that's a dumb idea? Look, zoos are doing it today. They, you know, they take the manure from their animals, and they used to pay people to haul them away. Now they put them into buckets, and guests to the zoo pay money for the manure that they used to have to pay to have it hauled away. So the sparking points or the things to consider for this week is what information do you collect that never gets used? Are there byproducts of your businesses that you're paying contractors to haul away? How could you flip it around and find a way to get them to pay you for it, this byproduct? And can you use the scrap from your products to create new products that your customers need? So get your idea notebook out and exercise that creative muscle. Just set aside 10 minutes a day, not much time. And go ahead and do it. You learn through practice, and here's your chance. To stay up on everything going on here at Kill Innovations, text the word INNOVATE to 33444, or if you're outside the U.S., send an email to innovate at killinnovations.com, or just go over and visit killinnovations.com, and you can subscribe to the newsletters. Uh, that'll also keep you up to date on all the activities we've got going on and new books coming out. Don't forget to check out killinnovations.com. For the show notes, it also will point you to things like the Kill Innovations group on LinkedIn um, and all the social handles that we, we uh, publish on. Don't miss out on the other great shows. Visit BizTalk Radio, and while you're there, grab the mobile app, and you can listen to Kill Innovations Live and along with all the other shows live. Also, this is a special request. If you know an innovator who has a great story that others should hear, Drop me a note at phil at killinnovations.com. That's a big help. I'm looking for everything from technology to medicine to education. Pretty wide area. So no limitations. If you've got somebody who thinks you've got a great story, send them over. Today's show was engineered by Jeremiah, backed up by Brandon. They've got that tough task of keeping me on track, and I appreciate the support they give me in the studio. I'm Phil McKinney. Don't let your innovation critics get you down. Keep on innovating. Talk with you next week. Bye-bye. The opinions you hear on BizTalk Radio are those of the hosts, callers, and guests, and do not necessarily reflect those of this station, BizTalk Radio, its management, or advertisers. The information on BizTalk Radio does not constitute a recommendation, offer, or solicitation to buy or sell any product or service. If you have any questions about BizTalk Radio, contact us at 817-274-1609 or at biztalkradio.com. BizTalk Radio. 